very cognizant of what it is that fuels me. And so every week I have a, this is sound, sound nerdy, but I have a planner. And so every week I outline what will contribute to the wholeness of Kim. And so what contributes to my spiritual health, my physical health, my emotional health. And every week I try to make sure that I do a couple of those things. And so it's just really being aware of who I am, where I am, and what I and, and, and what 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 helps me thrive. Kelsey, it's a new day. How are you? I'm doing great. It's a Friday where we're recording. How are you? Doing great. You excited to be here? Very. All right. I think we have a great guest on today's episode. Episode of what? Campus Confidential? Campus Confidential. Secrets from Higher Education Leadership. Who is today's guest? Today's guest is Dr. Kim Harrington. She's at Georgia Tech. I'm so excited she's with us today. I think our, our listeners are going to learn a lot. And I want to just say a few things about her accomplishments because they're going to hear more about who she is as a person, but her accomplishments are really impressive as well. She serves as the chief of staff for the Vice President of Student Engagement and Wellbeing at Georgia Tech. And she's had lots of roles at Georgia Tech as well here. She uh, had the same kind of role actually with the Vice President for Administration. She's a former student center director and she was the Chief Human Resources Officer at Georgia Tech as well. So this, I think what we're gonna hear today and people will hear today is this breadth of experience across the whole enterprise of higher education has helped her be a more reflective and uh, good, good higher ed, higher ed leader. I think we're really in for a treat today. I agree. And what I appreciate is her vulnerability, her willingness to share parts of herself from inside of work and outside of work and really um, from a place of authenticity. It's amazing. Yeah, she... She will help us know that um, confidence is wonderful, but sometimes there are other characteristics of leadership that are just as maybe more important to being successful in a people-centric role as well. Agreed. Shall we listen to her? Let's do it. You know, Kim, we love to ask people on this uh, on this podcast, this question in two ways. The first way is, how do you describe your job to your rideshare driver? You're off to the airport in a, a lift. How do you describe your job to a, to a lift driver? So what I do is I have the awesome privilege to provide support um, to our vice president for student engagement and well-being as her chief of staff. And so what that means is there's projects that I coordinate, there's advice that I provide, there's insight. So really it's providing advice, counsel, and support for um, the vice president of student engagement and well-being at Georgia Tech. Yeah, nice. So project management, staff support, whatever that looks like. So you've had this really interesting, um, maybe unusual, but certainly interesting career arc, uh, student center director, later chief human resource officer for Georgia Tech, then I think, right, chief of staff for the VP for administration and now chief of staff for the VP for student engagement. And I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about that that career arc. How, how did that uh, evolve for you and why such a varied career uh, over the years? So, Lauren, it's been fascinating, and I've been privileged, honestly. You know, I started this in, as a hall director, right? So I was a hall director very early on, worked in it, college admissions, so really there, got to understand the business of higher education, um, was in an assistant dean of students role at SUNY Fredonia, so loved that, and then discovered my real passion, which is in college unions. So my first union job was at the University at Buffalo, then moved to Georgia State University and the Student Center there, and then Georgia Tech and the Student Center. And so I've had a number of experiences before finding the student union. And then at the student union, that's where I think Georgia Tech provided, provided me with tremendous opportunity, tremendous opportunity to do lots of things from facility management, construction projects. And so the human resources move was quite interesting. Let me say that. And so um, at the time we were experiencing a transition in our um, human resources. And the vice president at the time said, you know, I really want someone who understands people 
mm. prioritizes people and who really, I think, can add a, a, sense, a strong element of building community in that space. Again, your uh, college union experience, the leadership that you bring, the operational experience would be helpful there, but I really need a people person leading human resources. So that was a temporary move. So move to human resources for what I thought was a six month term, and it really ended up being seven years. And so really supported Georgia Tech and led Georgia Tech through lots of transitions, um, COVID-19, um, a complete human resources platform transition. And after seven years, I said, you know, I really want to get back to a space where I think I can leverage my, my, my skills and talents differently and had an opportunity to serve our executive vice president for administration and resources. Her name was Kelly Fox to serve her as her inaugural chief of staff, which was a phenomenal job. She then found an opportunity um, at another university that was hard to refuse and then found um, myself here in a, in a perfect opportunity to come back to really kind of student affairs in this space and supporting this team and our vice president here in student, student engagement and well-being. So quite an interesting yeah. Journey. So why chief of staff? Like what fuels you to do this role yeah. every day? You know what, what I love about it? It's it's a little behind the scenes. Right. And so it is not up front. You know, I've, I've been there, had that experience and really now want to do everything I can to support and undergird and also build community and team within the leadership. And so this is an opportunity. So student engagement and well-being is a team that is is relatively new. And so the, our new vice president is our inaugural vice president for student engagement and well-being, which is really the combination of two large organizations. So student life and campus services. So campus services with traditional um, housing, student centers, parking and transportation, some of those auxiliary units, and combining our student life, counseling center, dean of students office, um, you know, first year transition programs and all of that. And so bringing those two functions together to really have a holistic perspective and support on student success from that lens. And so the opportunity to, to be a chief of staff and support those teams and that staff as we support students is phenomenal. And also supporting our new leader. And so what attracted me to this role is really the, the pullback to students. What attracted me to my first chief of staff role was probably the same thing in connecting the dots between IT, facilities, human resources, real estate, and providing support to that leadership team as we, as a, as a unit, administration and finance, really provided the what I call the backbone or the spine or the administrative infrastructure for the campus, faculty, staff, students. It's ANF that really um, provides the framework by which the campus thrives. And so the opportunity to kind of be behind the scenes and, and weaving and supporting and building um, Again, go, all goes back to building community and looking at our systems and finding ways to make sure that we were optimizing what we delivered and at the same time supporting that leader, right? Because leadership is often lonely. Um, and so being that confidant, being that right hand, being that voice, being that those set of ears um, to provide that insight or, or just be a, um, a sounding board behind the scenes is really critical. Leadership is, is lonely. And so having that trust of that leader to know that my job is to help ensure your success. That's my whole job, is to help you be successful and help bring to fruition your vision and what you'd like to achieve. And that to me is fantastic. It's, it's a nice place to be. So I, um, I, I treasure the opportunity. I love that and can hear the excitement in your voice, which is so refreshing in this day and age, because not everyone has excitement in their voice when they talk about work. So when you talk about building community and leadership, I think one thing Lauren and I have talked a lot about and with some others is in higher ed, we don't do a great job of focusing on the people who are doing the work. We talk a lot about student success and student engagement. I will even say that was my my talking points. How do we create student success? But I think we're at a place where how do we create a culture of success for the staff who can then provide those services and resources. So can you talk a little bit about kind of your philosophy and how you do that? Yeah, sure. It's really considering the people, right? And because what you do is really not who you are. 
And so taking the time to understand who you are and what you bring is really important. Taking time to do that. And so, you know, I think we sometimes get so focused on the output without really spending time focusing on who is helping to create that success. Who, what skills and talents do individuals bring? And so I think my philosophy there is really taking time to focus on the people. You know, we've had a just a pivotal time in our, just, just in our existence. There was a pandemic that impacted the world. There was an um, uprising based on racial, um, racial in, inequity in, in, in poor treatment. And so there was a point, again, when I was CHRO with my team, because again, my team in HR, our job was to support the campus. And so I said many a times, let's focus on us. And so the time is figuring out what is it that you need to be successful? Because what I would always say is you're navigating everything that everyone else is going through at the same time as everyone else, but you're providing support for that. And so one thing is I think is important is for us to as leaders and managers is to really take the time to listen, to engage, to pause. The work is important, but the work cannot be done without spending time with the individuals, understanding what they're managing while they're trying to support Georgia Tech or whatever, wherever they work. And so understanding who they are, what they bring, their skills, their talents, their challenges, and helping those meet those challenges. So it's, it's just taking the time to get to know the people, which is easier said than done. So how do you uh, take care of Kim? <laughs> that's, that's a great question. I, um, I've gotten better at that, I'll tell you honestly. And if I can be very transparent with you, my transition is an element of that. Um, I think when I was in uh, the, the human resources role, I found myself caring for others in ways that I wasn't caring for myself. And so this decision was an intentional effort for me to provide some self-care to me. And so this career change was significant, um, a significant element of my journey for self-care. And so what I do is I, um, I spend time with friends, right? I prioritize that. I spend time with family. I read. And so I'm very cognizant of what it is that fuels me. And so every week I have a, this is sound, sound nerdy, but I have a planner. And so every week I outline what will contribute to the wholeness of Kim. And so what contributes to my spiritual health, my physical health, my emotional health. And every week I try to make sure that I do a couple of those things. Um, I am trying to eat differently and eat whole food. Um, and so it's just really being aware of who I am, where I am, and what I and, and, and what 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 helps me thrive. When you have colleagues or friends or or staff who just seem sort of stuck, um, and you can begin to recognize. Well, let me actually ask it this way: How do you help them know what to recognize, and what do you advise them about recognition so that they can get unstuck and make the kind of change that you made for yourself? Yeah. And so I think it's um, asking questions, right? But I think, I think, Lauren, it comes down to getting to know them. Because if you don't know someone and take, if you haven't taken the time to get to know someone, you may not know when they're off or when something's off or something's not operating. And so I think the foundation is taking the time to get to know the individual and spending time in one-on-ones, in common conversations. You know, oftentimes we'll walk by and say, how are you? And don't wait until the person responds. So it's really waiting until the person responds and engaging. And, and even sometimes our response is, I'm fine, and saying, tell me more about that, right? Are you? And how can I support you? So it's, it's that. And so when I recognize in someone that something is off, we pause, whatever we're doing, and we'll say, What's happening? Let's unpack it, right? And, and especially a team member, someone that's direct report or a colleague or a peer, let's unpack that. What's actually going on? What can we do? Um, how can I support you in that? And sometimes I can have a direct role. Sometimes I can have an indirect role. Sometimes I have no role at all. But it's taking the time and helping them think through whether solutions. Oftentimes we place pressure on ourselves to deliver, to get it done. And so it's nice to sometimes have someone who's willing to say, well, let's, is there another way we can solve that that allows you to take care of yourself? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's, that's mm-hmm. often what I do. I think, you know, my change was motivated by a lot of things. I have two um, sons who are in high school and I didn't want to miss that. Uh, my father is 88 and, and as he ages, I am an only child. And so it's critical for me to be there. My father told me one day, he saw me just going from hither and yarn to, I was working and managing work and cooking dinner. And he said, hey, if you go down, this whole thing drops. 
He said, so I need you to make sure that you're good because if you're not good, we're not good. That mm-hmm. stopped me on my tracks. Mm. Wonderful. That's that's a lot. And what a dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he's pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. So let's back it up for a minute. Yeah. What was Kim like in college? <laughs> You know, I went to a small liberal arts uh, undergrad in SUNY Fredonia. I was a nerd, a quiet nerd. So I was pretty shy, very introverted. I remain an introvert now, but very um, shy. And I think always passionate about supporting people. I was a connector in high school. And I continue that connector piece as an, as an undergrad. And so I was an RA. Um, I had lots of different friends, but again, I was a quiet one. I wasn't a partier. I was kind of, you know, I was a nerd. Um, and I embrace that now. I didn't quite then, um, but really discovered um, residence life as a space for me to, to be. At. My major was biology initially because I wanted to be a veterinarian. Discovered an, an, an allergy to um, cats and dogs, decided I would not. <laughs> Occupational challenge. Hazard. Yeah. <laughs> Hazard. I'm going to change my, uh, my major to psychology, maintain the biological science interest. So continued, you know, my physiology and zoology just because I liked it, um, but pursued a degree in psychology and really fell in love with higher education. And so I was, um, you know, the not popular student who knew a lot of people, if that makes sense. Mm. I was kind of behind the scenes, became involved in our Black student organizations and student government, um, and really, really loved my undergraduate college experience. Loved it. I feel like you were a chief of staff as an undergrad student. Maybe I was chief of staff. And I'll tell you this, I know this is being recorded, but I don't know if I can say this. Lauren, I don't know that you know this. when I was an RA, another RA said, hey, Kim, I'd like to run for homecoming king. And you had to run on a ticket. And I said, OK, Michael, sure, I'll support you in that. I, I have no interest in that. That's too too public for me. But OK, I'll support you. If you need just to put my name on a ticket, that's fine. We'll do that. And so we ran to be homecoming uh, king and queen at the time was that was the name. And um, I won. And it was incredibly shocking um, because, again, who's this nerd? Again, predominantly white, small liberal arts in rural New York. And, and I went. I was the first black homecoming queen mm. um, at the university. So interesting. Wow. And so that, I That's think, beautiful. received the attention of then the vice president of student affairs and the dean of students. And they're like, this quiet RA who we really is all of a sudden like homecoming queen. And so at that point, I began to get to know kind of the leadership of our of our campus um, and began partnering with them on supporting the Black experience and Black student experience and things like that. And I think, honestly, that was what exposed me to a career in higher education. Kim, you've had this, you, you mentioned um, being intro, introverted. You've had, you talked about in your role now really like more of the behind the scenes after very public roles. You've had this interesting career where you've had very public roles and yet this self-awareness about being more introverted perhaps and enjoying maybe even the the behind the scenes. What do you say to people that say, well, I couldn't do that. I'm more introverted or make assumptions about what it means to to be in public roles that you must be extroverted. I mean, how have you straddled that? And what do you say to folks who, who wonder yeah. that? Yeah. And I think, Lauren, I think there's a one, I think there's a misconception about what being introverted truly is. And so I often go back to the true definition of, of introversion. It's where I get my energy. Right. Mm-hmm. And so because that what what in, in it energizes me and, and fills my cup is time, quiet time, reading time, time with a small group of friends. But that is where my fuel comes from. But that fuel um, because it comes from that doesn't prohibit me from occasionally um, even this, right? This is a little more extroverted type ex- experience, but I enjoy that because I enjoy people. And so I, I'm actually talking with someone on campus now who's a little more introverted. And I said, and that's fine because that's where your that's your source of energy. That's what drives you. But that doesn't prohibit you from pursuing an opportunity where there's greater exposure, where there's more engagement with people. 
And so I think just helping them understand that and really encouraging them and finding out, well, what is it that you that you'd like to do that you think this introversion may be a, a bit of a um, maybe prohibiting you. Let's let's unpack that a little bit and see if we can kind of step out and do that. And so I encourage people to really just take risks, take the chance. Um, there are a lot of people who are ext- who are introverts who really um, have some public facing roles, and and it's just a part of who they are. Yeah, and I think it comes back to your point around getting to know the person and the whole person because I think sometimes. It's easy to judge a book by its cover, if you will, for some folks, um, and see people in leadership roles or certain types of roles and make assumptions about who they are or how they got there. Right. 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 And so I love it when people talk more about what fuels them and gives them energy because not everyone sees that. Mm -hmm. So a question, what do most, what do you think leaders, some leaders need to hear, but people are afraid to tell them. (laughs) I think a couple of things. I think sometimes leaders um, don't listen as well as they could. I think they believe they listen and they believe they hear, but I don't know that they do. Because sometimes I think in leadership, you believe that you have the right answer and that you as a leader, you're supposed to know the answer and provide that. And I think really taking the time to say, "Hmm, I hadn't considered that or really allowing your team the space to be honest and open with you and know that there will be no retaliatory reaction to that. So creating a safe space for your team to support you and share their thoughts and input is really, I think, rare. Um, so listening is one. I think um, being open to blind spots, um, being able to have someone on your team that says, what am I missing here? Um, having the confidence. One thing I think is really important in leadership is allowing your team to poke holes in things, right? Just kind of say, what's 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 missing? What, 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 what don't I see here? Um, I think sometimes leaders, and, and being self-aware, know what you bring but also know where you maybe aren't strong and having the confidence and the self-esteem to bring someone on board that compliments you, right? That brings something to the table that maybe you don't have and that's okay. You know, it's, it's important to hire people that are smarter, stronger in certain dimensions and that balance that out. And I think sometimes as leaders, there's a fear of that, that I think um, later in life, I realize that is a strength. Yeah. Is there a moment, um, look, we all have blind spots. They're happening all around us all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Is there a moment that you had a blind spot come to awareness and it changed the way in which you show up or think or believe that you'd like to share? Can I say I have blind spots all the time? That's right. right. I think, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a space, you know, stepping over to human resources, right? So on, on one day, I was the director of the student center. The next week, I was leading human resources at Georgia Tech, which is significant. Georgia Tech is an international presence. We have Georgia Tech, Shenzhen, Georgia Tech, Europe. I mean, it's, and so understanding that one, the content knowledge, I didn't have. I then needed to rely on my team of experts to help us do what we need to do to provide that human resource support to the Institute. And so I think that humility was, was regal at that point. And I think in in even a more realistic situation um, in the student center, right? So we'll, we'll go back to that. I think even programming, right? Understanding the challenges with programming and trying to um, program in Midtown Atlanta. Hmm. Understanding the challenges there. We are not a rural campus. And so we're often competing with, you know, the concert venues and such like that. And so really hearing my programming team really describe the challenges of, of what that was and, and allowing them to lead on that dimension and say, let's figure it out. How do we find our niche and what works for Georgia Tech in Midtown Atlanta that doesn't um, compete necessarily with the offerings of Atlanta? And so 
I guess that's that's not a great example, but that's that's there were so many in Kelsey, but that's one. Yeah. You know, Kim, that <clears throat> transition you were just talking about is just so amazing from from student center director to chief human resources officer. And I'm what I'm imagining, this is maybe my thing, is we, we were talking the other day about imposter syndrome being a real thing. What do you do when you find yourself in a role where you you at least you feel like, even if you know more than you think, you feel like I don't know enough to do this well. And let me not project that on you, but at least ask for the advice. Like, what do you do? What advice do you have for people when you feel like you're in that place and all of a sudden you have this responsibility to, to initiate and you're not yeah. sure if you're know enough? Lauren, that was real. I mean, that was significant. You know, I, there were a number of people who who helped support that, right? Because they're saying, who, who are you to, to be able to do that? So I think in that situation, I had to take stock of what I did bring, but also know what I didn't. Right. And so being aware of, okay, I was identified to serve in this capacity. Why? And so I needed to lean into that to what is it that I bring solidly that I know? Where are the areas where really and honestly, I I don't. And so how do I leverage the team around me, the resources, um, become a part of a larger community to help me drive success on these dimensions? And so I think it comes back to that self-awareness and knowing that I was placed in that role for a purpose mm-hmm. and, and really respecting my boss enough to say, okay, I, I don't know everything, right? Um, but let's let's figure this out together. So I think it's just that self-awareness, acknowledging that you are here for a reason. There's some intention there. I believe that everything happens for a reason. I just, I believe that everything happens for a reason. I, I can't, I can't deny that. So I think that allows me to ground myself and okay, what's the reason I'm here? What do I bring? What are the lessons that I need to learn? What value can I add? And who can I leverage to help me be successful in this space? Yeah, that's great. I, the little speech I have to give myself sometimes is, I'm enough. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm enough. Yeah, I'm enough. I, same thing. Lauren, I'll tell you, the first time someone told me that was while I was in HR. Because there were many a days I, I didn't feel like I was enough. Mm-hmm. And so, Kelsey, you asked a question. I talked about my core group of friends, my introversion. I had a friend tell me one day, you're enough. And it startled me. And I was like, wow. And she said, no, no really, you're enough. Mm-hmm. And I believed her. And there are times that she has to, you know, remind me or my friends have to remind me that. And that's that's what gets me through. I get this email every day called Nice News. It's all stories that are positive, generally, uh, because there's so much negative out there. So I, this is my daily little mental feed for something good. Here's a qu- they run a quote every day. Here's a quote that came the other day by Douglas Adams. I rarely end up where I was intending to go, but often I end up somewhere I needed to be. Mm. I just I've held on to that. I, that's really good. That's really good. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Laura knows that I have a strong spiritual foundation. And so when I turned 50, I went and um, added, a, added a tattoo to my, um, to my collection. And so I have a tattoo on my wrist that says, be still. And it's a scripture, mm-hmm. be mm-hmm. still and know, right? And so there are times that I'm going through and I'll just take a look at my wrist. In the middle of chaos, it, it, it centers me to know that everything will be okay. Mm-hmm. Good to have that touchstone or the thing you turn to or the person you call or the thing that you read when you need it, when everything else is out of control. Yeah, that's really, really, that's great advice for everybody to have that thing, whatever it is. I think have that thing, whatever that thing is. Have that thing, use that thing. That's important. Because we all go through periods where there's some uncertainty into are we enough? Can we do it? You know, I'm overwhelmed. This can't be right. You know, I'm an imposter. What if they find out that I'm really not able to do this? Mm -hmm. Um, And so... It's something we all go through. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I feel like that was what was in my head is what keeps you grounded mm-hmm. was one of my questions. The other question that I have is your friend said you were enough. Who in higher ed has anyone said you're enough to you? Many people. I think I'm fortunate that there have been many people along the way who have said that I was enough. And so it starts back to SUNY Fredonia, right? And so I think I mentioned to you that the Vice President of Student Affairs, a gentleman named Robert Kuhn, um, 
was fantastic and a tremendous example and had a great walk around style. And so I learned a lot from his leadership in terms of how he engaged with his leaders. He trusted them, but he also walked around to get to know them. Uh, El Michael Dimitri, who was the next vice president of student affairs, Mike Dimitri, um, was my boss, right? And so as I was in uh, residence life and admissions and then in the dean of students office, learned a lot from him in terms of just how to, how to lead. And he taught me a lot of things and also told me that I was enough and that recognized what I brought to the table and valued it, right? And leaned into a Barbara Cotta. Barbara Cotta was a, a dean of students at University at Buffalo, raised me professionally to be a generalist and said, you can do, because I had no college union experience. Again, admissions, residence life, and she encouraged me to apply for a job and running really operationally the student union at University of Buffalo. You is a big school. And I said, but I have no union experience. She said, that's not what, what I'm looking for. It is the inherent passion for students, student success, your operational eye, your integrity, and your leadership is what I want. You bring that and that is enough. And so all of that. And I think that gave me the confidence to apply for jobs in Atlanta, to move to Atlanta to do that. And so I think along the way, I've had tremendous um, leaders who, who said, yeah, you're, you're enough. Even, you know, Lauren, I know you know Rich Deal, um, because I envisioned that I would remain at Georgia Tech for maybe a few years. But regularly, Rich would say, here's something else. And so in addition to running this, hey, let's let's expand this building and grow the student center. You can do that. You're enough. Oh, there's a special event. There's a, a building that is being gifted to the Institute. Let me show you. I want you to conduct a historic renovation on it and turn it into a beautiful special events venue. You can do that. And so I felt like every point, even, you know, my former boss saying, go spend some time in HR. Those are the messages of you're enough. Mm -hmm. I feel like Bob. the other thing that you're reminding us of is also the power of saying yes. Mm -hmm. So each of those things which you didn't have experience with, maybe didn't know if you could do, others knew you could do. You had enough confidence and um, commitment to the relationship to believe that it's possible and to say yes, which then opened up another thing for you. And that's a really, really powerful lesson, I think, for all of us as well. I think that's right. Lauren, I think, you know, what I had is necessarily the responsibility and the commitment to work hard. Mm -hmm. I don't I wouldn't say I had the confidence. Mm. Honestly, I think I had the drive and the work ethic to do everything I could. But in any of those, I don't know that on the outset that I said I can do that. Mm -hmm. I just said I'll give it my all. I would love to repeat that where I heard you say you're not sure you had the confidence but what you did have was the drive. Yes. To do it. Yes. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Because you just I just showed up. Yeah, I just showed up. I showed up and you know, my father worked in a steel mill for 42 years. And so what I learned was work ethic. Both of my parents dropped out of high school to work, right? And so what they both gave me was a work ethic and a drive. They both went back and completed GEDs, but it was for me, I saw them work hard. And so I said, I've not seen that before in terms of converting what this building into, into a special event venue. I've not done it, but let's do it. Mm -hmm. And so it's the drive. It's the work ethic. It's the, it's the, it's the commitment. It's that grit or whatever that I just, you know, I grew up in an inner city, inner city, Buffalo, New York, right? So inner city, east side of Buffalo, New York. And so it's just that drive to to do, to add value and to do the best that I can with whatever I attempt. I hear the people-centric um, core of you in the way that your colleagues at Georgia Tech noticed that in you and asked you, therefore, to be CHO, to, 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 to very, be very people-centric. What I'm wondering is, what, where did you notice that drive, that work ethic and leadership in places that might have been unexpected had a people-centered person not been in that CHO role? Where did you see it on campus that maybe we don't always notice? 
where did I see the need for it? Or where no, do where I see did, that? Where did you see leadership in places that it might have been unnoticed? Where did you see that drive and work ethic that are places that are overlooked that maybe, if not giving voice to it, would also remain overlooked? Yeah, I think, you know, during the pandemic, it was very clear because we were determining determining essential and non-essential, like what that, like who, who was to come into campus and who could work remotely, that type of thing. I saw it in our police department. I saw it in our police chief who was very cognizant and aware of what his team was going through and what they needed to endure. So I saw that leadership and care for people. That was phenomenal. I saw it in our residence halls. I saw it in our custodial teams. Um, I saw it in those leaders who were focused on the health and well-being and safety of their teams, but also supporting, helping their teams understand their role in helping Georgia Tech continue. Because I think for some, it was like, well, everyone's home. Why can't we be? And so I think it was helping them connect to the purpose um, of their roles and how the criticality of what they did in terms of maintaining a safe um, environment for the campus. So I saw lots of leaders really stepping up which was fantastic in recognizing and supporting their team and advocating for their teams and pushing back and saying, well, is there another way we could do this, right? And so it may not just be this way or this way. What about this? Can we propose environments where, and so we work with them to say, you know, everyone doesn't have to be there at the same time. Let's do flex schedules. Let's think about how we can support um, individuals and supporting their families because there are times where the schools were, were not operational. And so how do you work with a parent who has two or three small children where they're being educated at home, but the parent needs to come into work? And so really, I saw some leaders really leaning into creative ways to support their people and at the core of the people, not just the work, which was phenomenal. Do you, th- do you think we, we, we higher ed, we do an acceptable job of noticing leadership where it exists, recognizing, rewarding nurturing even? Uh, or is there are there lessons that we need to now deploy differently? I think sometimes. You know, I think, Lauren, on a campus, sometimes, yes. Sometimes I think we do recognize leadership. And I think often that leadership is rewarded with additional um, duties. Right, yeah, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so I think that's... <clears throat> Um, so I think that happens sometimes where we see something and something that's operating effectively and efficiently and operating well, we will gift those individuals with with, with additional responsibilities. I think sometimes there are the um, spaces where it may go unnoticed. Um, however, I think when you're in a situation where maybe your next level leader may not recognize what you're what you're adding, the team does. Right. And so that is manifested in ways of retention and happiness in team culture. And so I think there are spots on campus where there may not be broad recognition, but there are pockets of um, teams that are effective, that are thriving based on the leadership strength and acumen of their of their local leadership. Yeah, it makes me think I want to tap into younger you. So post-college. Yeah. Early career. Are there lessons or a moment or something that you can, a story you can share with us where you're like, that might not have been the best thing I could have done, but. Because how much time do you have? We got, we got time. We're not going anywhere. I was telling Kelsey, I need to apologize to everybody in the first five years of my career because I was so bad at it, you know. I was, I was arrogant. And so I think fresh out of grad school, I thought I knew it. I thought, yes. And so I was surrounded by a group of, you know, younger professionals. And we thought collectively that we had all of the answers. We knew exactly what was working, what wasn't. And if they just listened to us, the world will be a much better place. Because after all, I was fresh out of undergrad, finished my master's degree. I was ready. I was armed with information. I could quote theory. Bring it on. Yeah. So one specific example, um, a, one of my, our, our leader, our boss, our director at the time took her leadership team. And so we were responsible for student organizations, um, the building, orientation, Greek affairs. Um, so that was our, our core group. Went, to, went on a retreat and really was a planning session to talk about how can we as, you know, collectively work as a team and what were our goals 
we went to a very nice place, Niagara on the Lake, and began to share with the boss everything that she did wrong. I don't know how we started, or, but we began to fuel each other and talk about how our areas would be better if we could just do X or if we could just do Y. Um, I still shake, <laughs> um, but it was a, it was a time where we were just miss we were just young, right? And we were frustrated, and we felt that we were being limited in terms of what we could do because the vice president, which was you know several levels above us, had ideas about how to operate, and we had different impressions and different thoughts and wanted to try something different. And so she listened to us. Politely, and I, I still commend her. I need to send her a text after this and apologize. But she heard us and said, I, I hear you. I appreciate and what she didn't, what was great is that she didn't berate us at all. She listened and said, I hear you. I don't want to minimize your um, perspectives. I just want you to understand this is a lot larger than you know. There are elements of this that right now aren't clear to you. And so I will work with you to make sure that you understand the bigger picture um, and we'll continue to do this. We will continue to talk about this. She dismissed us early. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> we all went home and the next day we sent her flowers and such. And, you know, and but it was a lesson for us because we all thought that if we walk away, this place will crumble. I remember us saying that, when we, you know, because we were. We just thought we we knew it all. And I think now everything is so things are just complex and they're more complex than they are than you than you imagine. You know, there's funding complications, you know, being in a state system, there's political implications, there's priorities that we may not see. I mean, it's just there's people pieces. It's 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 complex. And I just as a young professional didn't see that. So that's that's one really glaring example for me. I think there were others where I didn't know what I know now. Right. And so I was an admissions counselor and so really had a very different impression of the recruiting process and, and in terms of what that meant for families and now really understand how it's important we make good decisions on the front side to make sure our students can be successful and also making sure that we set up resources and support structures to make sure that the students that we admit can be successful wherever we admit them. And so just, again, 30 years later, kind of looking back, lots of lessons learned in all of my um, areas of, of, of work, for sure. Yeah, I love that example. I, I sit and think, many of lunch conversations with friends in my 20s at work being like, well, if they just, if we just ran the world, it would be better. And now we sit in roles where we're kind of running the world yes. that we were judging back then. And it's fascinating to think about how complex it is. And I think one of the opportunities of leadership right now is how do you help educate truly how complex it is? Because I feel like one of the missing pieces earlier on in my career was that that transparency of what's really happening at the top. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm not saying from everybody. I had some great leaders and some people that shared a lot of information, helped me learn and grow along the way and tamper that <laughs> expectation. But... I just think the more you can share and help people earlier in their career, the better opportunity we have for better leaders for the industry long term. I think that's great because I think if you can demonstrate that transparency and the reason why. And so what I would always try to do is share the why of a decision. If I made a decision, I would share, well, let me tell you why. Let me tell you the inputs. Let me tell you the variables that I'm considering here, because, of course, I'd love to hear your perspective. And ultimately, the decision is mine as a leader, but let's talk about it. And then let's talk about how I arrived here and why I arrived here. And I think being able to share that is, is helpful. And also thinking through, again, I've only worked in state systems. And so understanding what our leadership has experienced. And so sometimes I would have conversations with my team members about, well, let's look at it through the lens of the president. 
right? And so he is balancing not only this, but this, this, and this. And he has to have, and I encourage a long view because this may be something that we're focused on right now, but if we pick our head up a little bit and look two years, three years down the road, what's the best decision? And so really encourage him to think that way and kind of come out of the, the narrow view and, and broaden that lens a bit to look a little broader, I think is really, really helpful. Yeah, I, I loved your story too, because it reminds me of how much I've always appreciated leaders that were transparent with what they struggle with. It demystifies in some ways um, that they do know everything, uh, which we would like to project on people. But I, I really appreciate when people say, Here's the, here are the things I'm balancing or struggling with. And it reminds me of, uh, I, I remember a point in my career too, where um, we had just this massive exodus of housing with housing contracts. And I was I was brought in and supervised and asked to sort of help stem some of this. It threatens, you know, revenues and bonds and these sorts of things. Well, what I what I found myself doing is trying to explain when those things would get appealed sort of up the line, so to speak, all the way at this place to uh, sometimes the president, but often to the vice president. And I was an associate assistant vice president is that the realities change for each of those people, Every, from the hall director to the assistant director to the director to the assistant vice president. Everybody, the things they're balancing become a little more complex, a little more um, political. And so sometimes I'd make a decision that would be overruled by the vice president. And right. my staff would say, how could that be? And I said, and I, what I had to think about myself and then help others understand is because her, her context and realities and politics are different than mine. And it's right. different than yours. And so the transparency just helps when you hear that from other people, I, I think, too. So I, lo I love the story, too. It's a great lesson for us. It makes me think, as I'm sitting here, we, we think about how to think up and the complexity of what's happening up. But when you're sitting in a middle management, which most of people in leadership roles are, executive director, AVP, VP, all middle management at some point, how do we think down to how complex it feels to that new employee right now. They feel like they're juggling so much. So what's their reality? And how do we spend time in both directions? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I think that's it. That's, and I think one trying not to forget what it was like you know, because I think sometimes I just had a conversation with a colleague yesterday about talking about the, the younger professionals coming in and, and how they want to rule the world. And it reminded me of me. Right. And so I think in remembering that is important. But to your point about how do you balance that that communication? I think it's it's it goes back to listening. It goes back to creating space, you know, creating space for people to to really engage in that and, and taking the time, Lauren, as you talk about, to describe kind of those, because I think those experience and those and how that context changes and, and listening, you know, to mm -hmm. and, and asking some questions about well, what do you what do you think? You know, how, do you, how are you experiencing this? How does this feel to you? How does this what resonates when you think about that? What are the things that you think are important for us to consider and, and walking that through? Anything else, Kim, that's on your mind that you want to as we've gone through the conversation that you're like, oh, I wish I would have said you know, there's one, there's, there's so much, I'm sure, because I, I tend to be an introvert and reflective. In an hour, I'm going to be like, oh my gosh, I should have said this. There's one <laughs> thing you ground me. I, um, because I stepped away from kind of student serving, you know, student serving role, there's a photo that I have of three students. So when I came to tech, I advised uh, our black student organization called ASU, African American Student Union. And so the, there were three presidents. ASU was in it difficult situation. Really, they were in debt. They were just a, an organization that was not highly regarded on campus. And so I took them on at that point and really supported the, the leaders in terms of rebuilding the organization. And so there were three presidents and they put on a shirt and took a picture just for me, really to say thank you, right, for, for the years of their, their term. And so that picture goes with me everywhere. And so through HR, when we were working at home during the pandemic and my new office here, that picture grounds me and helps me understand that even if I'm not in a forward facing student role, my job is to enhance the student experience personally for those students to help them be the best that they can. 
right? What Help them achieve their goals. Again, it goes back to the chief of staff. Help them do whatever it is that they want to achieve and also support the students writ large. So that's that's something that grounds me. And it's, it's, what's funny about that is this picture is in my office right now. And I had dinner with these three students. They're now 39. Um, but I had dinner it's with these students. amazing how that students. happens. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that? Yeah. But, you know, dinner with these three students um, just for the holidays. And it it's it grounds me, you know. And, and I told them that because they were like, this us. And I said, it is you. <laughs> um, and thank you because throughout my career at Georgia Tech, it has helped me um, remain focused on what's important. Well, what you have helped us remember, Kim, is that leadership is about people. It happens in really public ways and sometimes not so public ways. Mm -hmm. And it's always imbued with integrity and gift. And uh, you are those things. So thank you for your your time with us and all you do for students there and in higher education more generally. Thank you very much. Thank you for this opportunity. This has been great. I hope I didn't ramble too much. Oh, no. No. Thank you for your willingness to share and be authentic and vulnerable in this conversation. Yeah. Greatly appreciate it. So we have one more thing, and I think we're going to call it extra credit. Seems appropriate. All right. So for this extra credit, what did you major in in college? Um, well, mostly social life. Same. Um, yes, same. I did go to class and I did graduate. I had a double major, one in communication, public relations, uh, as, I mean, rather advertising as my emphasis. And the other was in Spanish. Oh. Um, so but that was the third round. I started in international economics. Okay. Uh, and that lasted until I took my first economics class and decided, I don't like this. Mm. And then um, went into journalism. And then we got Burroughs Word Processors, <laughs> and it became the College of Communication. So, uh, yeah, communication and adverti- advertising, really, in, in Spanish. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Parks and Recreation. Love that show. I will say I, um, I actually didn't realize anyone worked in higher education when I was in college. Like, everything just happened around me, for me. It was my world. Everyone else was just living in it, I think, potentially. Um, I worked really hard to figure out how I was going to bring a keg into my dorm room. Did you succeed? On the final day. Well, the plan was, you know. Wait, well, you waited till the final day to bring a keg in? Because I was like, if I'm going to get in trouble, I'm not moving back in. I was like, like, first week. I was like, I don't think. Well, no, we drank all the time (laughs) in the dorms. But this was like the big culmination, the crescendo of the two years. I had the whole plan, right? You know, we all have, you know, there's the um, carts that you rent. We rent out to students, right? Moving carts. And then you move in refrigerators. You move out refrigerators, mostly in big boxes that could definitely hold a pony keg. In case anyone is wondering, we measured it. Confidential is presented by Compass Group, produced by Corey Insko and Jen Fisher, with your hosts, Kelsey Harmon-Finn and Lauren Rollman. 